This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Summer Strut 2014 edition. It's Wednesday, June 25th, 2014. On today's show, The Fosters is a show about a mixed-race lesbian couple and their multi-culty, straight, gay, bi-and-questioning kids. It would be a PC nightmare if it weren't also so good. And then Summer Strut is here. We pick through a listener-suggested song list to find our struttiest favorites. And finally, why have old corporate signs become such an urban revivalist nostalgia trip? Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, uh, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. The Fosters is an ABC family one-hour drama about a mixed-race lesbian couple and their family of one biological and a mix-and-match litter of fostered kids. If it sounds like the self-congratulatory summa of all political correctness, that's because it is. But it's also supposedly damn good. The sleeper pleasure of the summer is what Slate's own Willa Paskin has called it. We're joined by June Thomas, who's the editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ section. June, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. All right. Before we start and dig into our discussion about the show, June, why don't we, we're going to listen to a clip. Why don't you set it up for us? So this clip is from the quinceañera of Mariana, who is the daughter of Lena and Steph, the biracial lesbian couple. And Lena is biracial herself. Her mom is black. Her father is white. And she has invited her mother, with whom she has a very tense relationship. And we learn that part of that is about colorism. And in this clip, Lena kind of gets mad at her mom. And they finally have that very sort of tense, intense conversation. Honey, dark-skinned people face more discrimination. That is just a fact of life. So maybe we are trying to make up for what we couldn't give Mariana. 
but I understand how she feels. Do you now? You were raised by a black mother. And by a white father. And I never felt accepted by either community, Mom. Oh, well, I'm so sorry you've had such a tough time being a beautiful light-skinned woman. Oh, Mom. But like it or not, the color of your skin has afforded you more opportunities than anyone like me has ever had. See, that is what you've always assumed. That being biracial has made my life easier. Because it has. Like it or not, you will never know what it is like to be a black woman in America. And we should know for listeners that here as the music is swelling, Lena is storming away from the table and her mother and this insulting thing her mother has just said. June, it seems to me we've come a long way, not only since June Cleaver, but since Love, Sydney. Uh, why don't we begin by talking about the show as a milestone, and then we'll talk about the show as a show. Is it a regular watch for you, and uh, do you like it? Oh, my God. This is like my great passion of television. If I've been away for from my TV for a while, and I come back and I have loads of shows lined up, this is the one that I will go to first. I think it is just an amazing, beautiful show, and it has both the kind of great big dramatic melodramatic teen storylines that I confess I have a little bit of a soft spot for but it also has just amazingly subtle perceptive moments that I've just never seen anywhere else on television and you know it doesn't hurt too that everyone's beautiful and the sun's always shining and even when they're having just awful things happen you do feel that there's an amazing amount of love in this family and and I just find that just irresistible June, I love hearing how much you love the show. As you know, I'm very susceptible to falling for shows mm-hmm. on ABC Family. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Make It or Break It, the gymnastics oh. show that I talked about. Yeah, we're pouring out we're a little beer out. for for the dearly departed Make It or Break It. I watched an episode of this last night in preparation for this segment. I feel that I could fall for it. I'm not sure I'm going to totally fall for it. And I'll try and put my finger on why. There are a lot of very real problems in this show, and yet it is a very romantic and kind of cozy safe space in which to explore these problems. So it seems like the most loving, comfortable, spacious, homed, well-off, well-meaning foster parent situation imaginable. Seems like the lesbian couple at the heart of the show have great communication with each other, very open communication with their kids. They face problems constantly, but the problems are inevitably solved by being talked out with love and a hug. I mean, in some ways, maybe it's sort of like The Cosby Show, which was another groundbreaking show where there was just there in order to put a quote unquote groundbreaking or different looking family on television, you had to make that family almost stultifyingly loving and boring uh, in their dealings. Obviously, The Cosby Show wasn't boring. It had a comedian at the heart. And this show has a lot of charm maybe slightly more melodramatic than comedic at its core as well. But the ultimate safety of this unorthodox family seemed slightly stultifying and boring to me. I'm curious to hear what Dana and Steve thought. 
Yeah, I mean, that palatability is both what makes the show so watchable. It goes down so easy. And I actually watched three episodes, June, just because I couldn't stop. I, the, I got hooked into the teen melodrama, sort of Dawson's Creek style. And mm-hmm. I actually think that's mm-hmm. one of the weaker parts of the show. But the kids Agreed. are all really interesting. And, you know, if, if you get into the high school melodrama, you'll, you'll like just that soapy part of it. But I agree that it's among the adult characters that the more interesting storylines emerge. I had one exception to Julia's rule that everything is just so palatable and cozy and everything works out right at the end. I mean, there's no question that this is a show in the ABC family line of shows that's meant for a whole family to watch together, that when it does raise problems like sexual assault or drug abuse, sort of finds a way to wrap it all in family love. But in the wedding episode, I don't want to reveal too much about it, but there is a moment when the the couple who've been together, I think it's implied for a decade or more, yeah, right? Yeah, 12 years, I think, yeah. Finally decide to get married. And there's a really, really harsh element in that episode, which is that the father of the Terry Polo character, what's her, the character's name? Steph. Right. One of the two women in the couple, the the white woman in the couple. Uh, Her father is this conservative, apparently maybe religious guy who's never accepted her lesbianism, has never accepted her alternate family lifestyle. And she comes and disinvites him to her wedding. There's a there's a, a great scene between him and Annie Potts, who I love. Annie Potts is always fantastic and everything, who plays Terry Polo's mother. She goes to her ex-husband and essentially says, drag your saggy ass to this wedding or else you have to affirm our daughter's life and her love. And uh, and he sort of agrees to do it reluctantly. Then there's a later scene that Terry Polo goes to him and says, don't come to my wedding. I don't want you there because you haven't accepted my life. And I was sure at that moment. I just thought, this is too ABC family. He's going to show up. There's going to be some moment where he appears in the background at the first dance or something and makes a toast. And it didn't happen. The dad didn't come to the wedding. And the fact that the, the show was willing to go that far and actually cut him out of her life, at least for that episode, I thought was, was fairly harsh. And I was kind of impressed. Right. I think you're, you have both uh, sort of put your finger on something that I love about the show and at the same time kind of wish was a slightly different that you know, terrible things go wrong. Terrible things happen to this family. In fact, sometimes, you know, if you wrote down all of the adventures that they've had in, you know, 23 episodes or something, you'd think maybe Child Protective Services should go to that house because, like, (laughs) every single character has had something really awful happen to them. And they also are really pretty well adjusted because they're in such a loving household. But I think that There's a little bit of of sort of aspirational wish fulfillment here that love and talk and open communication can solve problems. But it's, you know, you're right, Dana, that not everything works out just exactly as, you know, the perfect way would be. So, for example, one of the characters has, you know, been the victim of sexual abuse. She gets an epiphany. She gets some healing, but the legal system doesn't work out in the ideal way. And I think for me, actually, this comes into one of the things that I think is most beautiful about the show, which is that its real gift is for those subtleties, that yes, there are all these adventures that are written in like a big fat black marker, but then there are some just sort of beautiful, delicate pencil lines too. Now, I do I do really like the show. I like the performances. I like the writing. Seems to me as subtle as you guys have um, indicated it is. I love the overall message of it, which is that family values aren't racially or biologically specific in ways they've been construed to be in the past. It really is about the creation of a loving and supportive environment. Uh, Norms are just uh, completely anachronistic in this day and age. However, I will say it just is more evidence about how we'll do anything to avoid a conversation about social class because, I mean, because for a show that's all about how being loving and supportive has nothing to do with sexual preference or race it's amazing how much it does seem to equate in an aspirational way being loving and supportive with being kind of bourgeois well-to-do i was really surprised at that part of the show that it's in the casting decisions 
So everyone is beautiful. Yes. Um, but also in the set design, the production design, it's almost there were two moments that really caught me. And this is in the context of liking the show enormously. The first was I love the fact that the uh, white mom, the cop mom, is a grammar cop. <laughs> also, yes, yes. there's this moment where in that episode, one of the kids uses the overcompensatory I instead of saying me. In America, apparently everyone thinks the word me is grammatically incorrect under all circumstances. And so people say, you know, she gave it to June oh, and I. Right. And there was this pause and I was cringing. And the mom says, you know, you know, whatever, and me, and corrects her. I was like, you know what? I kind of swooned for the show. And then, <laughs> I, and then in the background of their kitchen, I swear to God, there is a, a look, their oven is a Lacanche oven, a French Lacanche oven, which I happen to know for reasons that will remain undisclosed <laughs> is a like fifteen or $16,000 French oven. And I was like, you know what? I'm calling bullshit. I'm calling Marxist yeah. bullshit on this show. <laughs> like, I don't always feel the need to uh, call Marxist bullshit, but you know, if you are, if you, if you have a little bit of the Marx gene in this uh, day and age, it is amazing how openly, in in the context of mass television, even we'll talk about anything now in American life with total openness, except social class. And I just, I don't, that's a little bit of a worm in the apple for me that there that there is an association of the warmth and nur- you know nurturance of a healthy family with of like pure one levels of bourgeois comfort. Can I make a totally off-topic and goofy question before Please. we close the segment? Um, I think that's a smart point about class, Steve. One of the plot engines of this show is the thwarted love between oh. foster siblings. Foster cest. There's there's some foster cest. There's like some some cute hottie teen foster siblings who have thwarted love. And I will confess, as a sucker for teen soaps, like that as a plot engine was totally compelling. Like if I were going to go back and watch more, it would not be for like the nuanced take on <laughs> parenting, but for like, oh my god, are they going to get together? And it made me realize, it made me remember back to watching like the most famous blended family show of all time, The Brady Bunch, right? Which is referenced in this show, We're No Brady Bunch. I I, I think I didn't watch that particular episode. But um, I feel like in my viewing of The Brady Bunch, there was a lot of subtextual sexual tension between the Brady families. And then I remembered that and realized maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> like, was that true for any of you in your viewing experience of The Brady Bunch? Am I just like demented? I've never seen The Brady Bunch. Oh, British June. <laughs> I mean, there have to be fan fiction blogs. <laughs> <laughs> up the wazoo about exactly this. I don't think I ever took it to that level. But when you think about bringing three sort of tween boys and tween girls together, well, Bobby and Cindy don't count. They weren't <laughs> tweens yet. But yeah, I would think among the older Brady siblings, how could there not be some initial tension when they brought them together? Yeah, I don't know if the show ever dealt with it explicitly, but it just made me realize, like flashing back to that show, that I totally sort of assumed, even though it was not an explicit plot point, there was all kinds of sexual tension in that house. So I feel like this show is like the sexual tension made explicit that was sublimated in the Brady Bunch. I don't know. Steve, am I crazy? Uh, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yes. I remember the the Brady Bunch was drowning in, you know, enforced innocence. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine this isn't just a projection on your part. All right. Well, that, the, draw what conclusions you may about my psyche. Based well, put it this way. I mean, at least culturally, you can say that this is a, an unveiling of the tensions that in the era of the Brady Bunch could never have been spoken, even if they did exist between, you know, Jan and Jan Peter. Jan and Peter. <laughs> it's definitely Jan and Peter. I'm not sure about Marsha and Greg so much. <sighs> all right. Well... I think we all know it's on your fanfic bookshelf, <laughs> Julia. No comment. 
All right. Well, the show is called uh, The Fosters. It's on ABC Family. We all thought it was quite good. Um, and we'd love to know what you think of it. So come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and let us know. June, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? This week, we are delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. And as you know, they have 150,000 plus audiobook titles, which you can play on any old device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And Audible has an offer for GabFest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So you have 150,000 plus titles to choose from when you go there. But we have been compiling of late the Culture GabFest bucket list of all the books you should listen to before you die. And we have for this week something actually related to our Kentile Floors topic. Julia, you want to talk about it? Yeah. In our next segment, we're going to talk about preservation in New York City. But if you are interested in or want to understand the current shape and state of New York City, you have got to read The Power Broker, which is the massive tome. It was like the Thomas Piketty of whenever it came out, right? The huge book that everybody said they should read and maybe didn't actually read. But it's a biography of Robert Moses, who had all sorts of ambitious plans for reshaping New York, some of which were eventually thwarted, some of which were not. Some of which have ruined entire neighborhoods, ceased to disappear. (laughs) Some of which have ruined entire neighborhoods. Uh, This is one of those books that is completely fascinating to dip into. I've read lots of big chunks of it, but I have never, I will admit, you guys might kick me off the Culture Gap Fest tomorrow because of this. I've never read the whole thing. And uh, an audiobook is sort of the perfect way to get through it because all of the wonderful reporting by Robert Caro and all of the great stories and all of this history can just come dripping, drip, drip, drip into your ears as you go about your daily business and walk through whatever city you are currently in and whatever state of preservation it is or is not. So the book is The Power Broker by the wonderful Robert Caro. It's read by Robert Sandine, and I believe it's on there unabridged. So you will get all, How all many hours of Robert is Caro. It is 66 hours, Dana, so I will be seeing you in a month. <laughs> it's perfect for your summer drives across all of Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how well-preserved Mongolia is. Actually, that would be great to be listening to how New York was raised and built up again while driving across some completely trackless landscape like Mongolia. <laughs> it all exist in your imagination. Yeah, incongruous, incongruous listening is always fun. I remember I listened to Steve Jobs' biography, the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs while driving through the American West. And it was, you know, sort of these like wide open frontier pioneer spaces both seemed like a very appropriate place to listen to the tale of this kind of American pioneer of a sort and also totally incongruous because I was in these utterly technology-less expanses of natural beauty um, listening on my Apple devices to the story of the invention of Apple devices. But anyway, no matter where you listen to, to the story of Robert Moses, you will be interested and informed. So that is this week's addition to The Bucket List. So remember that your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest and, of course, one free book. So give it a try today at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. But such signs, Tom Wolfe once wrote, they soar in shapes before which the existing vocabulary of art history is helpless. I can only attempt to supply names, he wrote. Boomerang Modern, Palette Curvilinear, McDonald's Hamburger Parabola, and on and on and on. The Pepsi-Cola sign one sees from New York City's FDR Drive. The Sitco sign one sees from almost everywhere in Boston. What had once been thought of as kitsch architecture at best, an eyesore and a commercial intrusion at worst, has come to be regarded as a serious expression of the American vernacular genius as a kind of art form. 
there have recently been protests in Brooklyn to save the old Kentile Floors signs, prompting the New York Times, I should say the wonderful New York Times writer, Eugenia Belafonte. How has she never been name-checked on this program? She's such an excellent reporter and columnist. Anyway, in a recent column, she writes, the old corporate signs are mammoth emblems to industry whose output or methods of production are or were anathema to a prevailing value system that holds in relentless contempt anything processed, chemically supplemented, bought in a chain store, or intended for ingestion more than 11 minutes after harvest. Julia, it it seems to me uh, she has happened upon an interesting contradiction here, which is that with a couple of decades of uh, desuetude, if that's how that word is pronounced. Wow. I'm not sure if that's how I pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? Desuetude. Desuetude? Maybe you're right. I think you might be right. And what does it mean? Decline? Disuse, I think. Uh, We'll go with disuse or (laughs) disuse, I think. Um, Anyway, after a couple of decades of disuse, um, these things become encrusted with a, a kind of longing or nostalgia for something that if we actually hadn't, we wouldn't want. Explain this contradiction to me. Well, I thought that Junia Belafonte's piece was very interesting and thought-provoking. And the basic argument is, you morons with your artisanal pickles, you profess to value a non-corporatized system that does not reduce humankind to lowly cogs, lowly underpaid cogs in a factory making floor tiles that actually, some of which contain asbestos, which is true of the Kentile floor factory. Um, You know, you are fetishizing these emblems of a corporate structure that you decry in your normal life. And basically you're hypocrites and you should all stop trying to save the Kentile floor sign and start like donating money to modern working class New Yorkers. Instead, there still are some of them, even though you've pushed them out of your brownstone neighborhoods with your renovations where you would never consider using anything like vinyl flooring that Kentile makes because it's all about reclaimed barn wood that you've imported from upstate. Very satisfying Smackdown. And in fact, one of the favorite pastimes of artisanal Brooklyn is to read Smackdowns of themselves. I think they enjoy that as well. So I think her target audience might also be her target uh, in, in writing this piece. But I did not find this to be a particularly persuasive dismissal of efforts like the one to save the Kentile sign. Just for listeners who haven't seen it, uh, this is a massive sign. It rises high in the skyline of a fairly low-slung neighborhood in Brooklyn around the Gowanus Canal. It's actually quite near to the Bell House where we did our live show in um, back in September. And it is kind of on a, a girder. You can kind of see the structure that it's hanging on. There's sort of like a big latticework of girders of some kind. And then there's this neon lit sign that's hanging on the front of it. And it's eight floors high to give some sense of its scale. So it can be seen from neighborhoods surrounding. Yeah. And it also there's an elevated subway that goes past it. So it's one of, it's something you see when you when you're taking the F train further out into Brooklyn. It's a little local landmark. It's something it's a point of interest. It's something that distinguishes a neighborhood, a formerly industrial neighborhood full of warehouses that is somewhat featureless. It does not have its own Chrysler's building or, you know, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of monumental bits of architecture in it. And I'm not sure that there's a zero-sum game between trying to preserve some sort of architectural aesthetic and visual diversity within a particular landscape and trying to care about or better the lives of New Yorkers of varying classes today. And I think a city that was denuded of architectural variation would also be a poorer city 
in its own way. Uh, and I think to set those two up in direct opposition to each other felt a little bit cheap. Like I'm not, it was, it was kind of a nice satisfying blow. But when you think about it, I'm not sure it's necessarily, I don't think people should necessarily feel guilty or bad about having signed a petition to try and preserve the Kentile sign. And in fact, the upshot is the sign is being preserved because all these people followed it on Twitter and signed a petition and, you know, did whatever little modest bit of local urban preservation activism uh, that they did, the owner has agreed to try and remove it intact and donate it to some local neighborhood alliance that's going to try and reinstall it somewhere else, which seems to me like a good outcome. I don't know, Dana, am I am I an apologist for snooty, stupid Brooklynites? I don't know. I mean, I, I agree that it's it's more complicated than just anybody who wants to save this dumb sign is an, is an idiot. And, and I have sympathy <laughs> for... <laughs> <laughs> and I have some sympathy for, you know, clinging nostalgically to the past of your neighborhood, reading all of this this flap about the Kentile sign and about, in general, preservation of industrial signs and monuments made me think of this great Colson Whitehead column, the novelist Colson Whitehead writing about New York City and how everyone's New York City that they're preserving desperately and sentimentally and nostalgically is the New York City that they know from when they moved there, right? That New York City began to exist in its pure, sentimentalizable form the minute you moved to it. Right. And obviously, the history of New York may be more so than the history of any world city I can think of is one of palimpsests and overlays and ripping everything down and starting over again. I mean, we ripped down the original Penn Station. You know, how much more beautiful and significant was that than the Kentile Floors sign? I mean, New York is pitiless in terms of, you know, what it will raise to the ground in order to to raise up something new. And so I think it's hard to affirm both that continual renewal of a city and to cling to the things that you love about it. When we were talking about whether to do this segment or not, Julia, you mentioned, and now I can't remember what they're officially called, ghost paintings or something? I think they're called ghosts, yeah. Ghosts, the paintings, the old painted signs on the side of a brick building, right, that you can still see these faded outlines of. I love those ghost paintings. I'm so sad every time one of them gets painted over or built over, the building gets torn down or repointed brick or whatever, and those things disappear. But who who will save those things, right? I mean, in, in whose imagination and memory are they significant enough that we can treat them as landmarks? It's it's sort of it's hard to place who's responsible for those old ghostly outcroppings of old New York. Yeah, Dana, I completely agree with you. It's interesting how familiarity breeds so much more than just contempt. You know that that we can fall in love with our lived environment. Um, even though it may not be intrinsically interesting or visually pleasing, it's what we know. And over time, it takes on a whole other quality and it becomes part of that palimpsest and utterly wiping it away. doesn't seem like that seems like a bad habit. And almost un- under any conditions in a city like New York that has a way of wiping away the past, preservation under any circumstances is a good habit. So wherever that uh, impulse lands, uh, I think we have to nurture it uh, and further it. Then the secondly, I would say is that the, the Tom Wolf quote really is right, that you know, especially after you know, Andy Warhol and, and the architectural critic um, Robert Venturi, you know, whose classic work learning from Las Vegas talks about signs as industrial art, you know, it, these aren't whatever the logo represented at one point in terms of actual you know, production practices or corporate values, it itself was designed by someone who had an artistic sensibility. Uh, so it's not just the case that it's pure nostalgia. I think that they have an in- intrinsic aesthetic appeal. And then finally, I would say, however, at the, at the heart of her argument is something very interesting. She talks about Carhartt jackets, and, and I don't know if she says trucker hats or... But she talks about the reduction of working class life and sensibility to these, to basically branded paraphernalia, 
worn by people who are not themselves working classes. She says SO shirts, trucker caps, and Carhartt jackets. You know, we have such an interesting and ambivalent relationship to the old industrial working class, which is disappearing in a post-industrial and service global and service economy. And I don't know that it's just purely bad faith. I don't know that it's simply because we're no longer as aware that um, the uh, factory was producing asbestos or that its labor relations were troubled. I don't know that that's the... It, I don't know that it's a pure act of forgetting to, to, to care about these signs or to wear those hats. I actually think that there's a, an authentic nostalgia for a more direct relationship between what people did and what was the physical thing that was made. So I don't think it's as simple as saying we we don't want any of we, you know we wouldn't want any of the features of the Domino Sugar Factory if it were once again active or the Kentile Factory if it were once again active. I think that's wrong. I think people actually feel displaced by their absence and thrown into a much vaguer, more ambiguous world of self-selling and self-dealing on a, on a, on a impersonal uh, and, and increasingly global scale. And so they do cling to these things as meaningful symbols, not, not vacuous symbols. That's so interesting, Steve. I've never really heard that point made, that, that there's anything beyond sort of like a sinis- slightly sinister and flip disregard for the lives of the working man in the adoption of the more moneyed classes of various working class symbols. But I think I think there's something to that. I think there's a sense in which so much of the work that's done by upper middle class people is divorced from any kind of physical or tactile reality. It's all virtual and digital, um, that that there is a genuine nostalgia at the heart of that. The other thing I'd say more globally about preservation being a force for good is it's inherently a counterbalance to the forces of capitalism, right? It's an it's an inherent counterbalance to the tendency of a city like New York to constantly change, for all of the old buildings to be clad in glass, to be raised and replaced with luxury condos. And so where preservationist attention alights and has success, I think it's good for the city. I mean, Dana, you mentioned Penn Station as something in a long line of this. I actually think Penn Station was like a flashpoint moment in the culture of New York that sort of woke the city up to the notion that preservation was important. I mean, you know, the fact that that incredible, beautiful building was raised uh, is just astonishing. If you if you never saw it or have never seen pictures of it, you should go online and Google images. Of, yeah, we'll of, link to it on the show page. We'll maybe. put them the on the show page. The old and the new Penn Station. But if you look at, at the old Penn Station, you're just like, what the hell? It looks like one of the wonders of the world, practically. It just looks like this incredible, elegant, gorgeous, huge like glass temple, structure. light flooded temple. Right, yeah. and then to place a low-functioning abomination in its place... In the in the heart of the capital of the you know mightiest country in the world, right? A t- transportation hub. I mean, t- it just it is it is an unthinkable crime, right? And and so anyway, instead of that being part of a train of preservation, I think that was like a catalytic event in the history of New York. And in fact, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission started as a result of it afterwards, and it is now a psychic scar on the city of New York. Um, that people will mobilize for something around the Kentile floor sign. And I I think it's generally to the good because what we are going to end up with inevitably is not a purely preservationist city locked in amber that looks exactly as it did in the 1940s or 50s and has no bearing on the way modern life is lived today. But there are so many forces pushing us forward towards change, towards raising old buildings, towards, you know, putting new ones up. 
new structures, good and bad, new structures, beautiful and horrendous, that where there are little moments of preservation or let's try and keep some of the texture of the city, keep the palimpsest nature of New York, make it possible to see some of New York's industrial history in the middle of its, you know, in that neighborhood, more residential present. I think that's to be celebrated. All right. Well, clearly today's words are palimpsest and desuetude. And we could throw in catalytic too. Those are pretty good. Um, all right. Well, the, the article, original article, the column is uh, Nostalgia's Blurring Glow. It's by Genia Belafonte in the New York Times. Uh, come tell us what you think about the habits of preservation and destruction in your community at facebook.com slash culturefest. All righty. Before we move on, Julia, don't we? We have a little bit of business to uh, attend to. Before we move on to our Summer Strut segment, which you've all been waiting for, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners about Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our new membership program, and it offers listeners and readers of Slate all sorts of perks, including bonus GabFest segments, a guide to everything we've ever endorsed on the show, all kinds of perks on the site, and it costs 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. Uh, on this week's Slate Culture GabFest Plus bonus segment, we're going to be answering a listener question, and that question is, what is your best non-marketable skill? Uh, Dana claimed when we were preparing for this to be monetizing all the skills she had. She wasn't. So we'll see We'll see what she came up with as a non-marketable skill. Um, I'm still I, racking my brain moments <laughs> before we tape it. Anyway, so uh, if you're a Plus member, you can listen to that segment. If you're not, you should sign up. And so you can listen to that segment and learn learn what Dana is keeping from the rest of the public, what skills she's keeping from all of us. The URL where you can learn more and sign up is slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, let's strut. All right, well, it's that time of year again, and it's that point in our show we get to strut. And that particular one was uh, a water fountain by Tune Yards. All right. Well, it's that time of year again in which we sift through a peck of listener-suggested songs and choose those that evidence a certain summer strutitude. And as we're all platinists at this table, we also consider what makes something strutty. What is the struttiness of strutty? We're all what at this table? What are we? Platinists. What's a platinist? A pl- what's a platinist? Oh, like Plato. An acolyte of Plato, uh, someone who, but of course, wouldn't it be who thinks not thing? only in terms of the specific instantiation. Julia, I thought it was something also you... the, the it's the perfection ideal. as a kind of form. Yes, I don't think no. this banter is working. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the platonic form of banter. <laughs> Without further nonsense, Julia, I pin this all on you. This segment is your brainchild. Take it away, aka my fault. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So this is, I think, our fourth summer doing this, maybe. And uh, we had an array of selections from our listeners, for which thank you guys very much for sending them in. And I had sort of a funny experience listening to them all, which is that it made me feel like perhaps pop culture is not at a super strutty moment. Like, I think there's a vibe in in pop culture right now that's sort of like ethereal anthemic like Mm. i'm thinking about songs like beyonce's xo that they sort of have this kind of ringing choirs of angels it's still a dance track but the sound is not funky and the store the songs that popped out to me on this list were like the straight up funk 
from, you know, decades ago, which just have a strut that's unfightable. And I think this is something we've learned over the years. Like you can have a new pop song, something like Icona Pops, I Love It, or last year Dana talked about Pharrell's Happy. Obviously, there are catchy pop songs that descend upon us every year. And I certainly heard a bunch of things that I liked that, that we'll talk about today. But nothing actually like awoke the particular strutting tendons in my hips. Unless it had been composed before 1970. Yeah, and like Mm. one song that came on and you just heard the opening riff of, here, let's play it before I say the name of it. I'm sure our listeners will will recognize it. Look at her, she's a bad So that's She's a Bad Mamma Jamma by Carl Carlton. I'm not sure what the original year is on that track. It's almost like a goofy throwback song at this point, right? I mean, the name of the song is She's a Bad Mamma Jamma, which is just comical. But for pure strut, that beat is like hard to top, I found. Right. And the best modern pop music, it seems to me, cannibalizes those old beats. And I might just rather go back to the original ones. But as, as always, I am not the person to weigh in on the newer stuff on Summer Strut. I'm always drawn to that. Can I throw out my own title to a funk track that I absolutely loved? Yes. And this was probably the one that got me the most strutting, the one that actually had me changing my walk in time with the song. It was 25 Miles by Edwin Starr. I loved that one, too. Here, let's listen to that. You see, she's got the candle and the kisses. Yeah, the Jackson 5 actually recorded a cover of that song in 1969, but I love this original version by the author Edwin Starr. It is just so funkadelic and tight. One other in the, in this sort of classic category, which I'll put in before I let you talk, Steve, sorry, is that someone actually nominated my husband's and my first dance song from our wedding, which is sort of a Stax classic from Carla Thomas called Baby. Anyway, that that was a treat to find a listener who had a soft spot for that song because my husband and I do too. Steve, how about you? Were you were you attracted to the throwbacks or were you propelled into the strutty future? Well, I kind of like the direction of the strutty future, which is this you know kind of squaring of the circle of uh, hip hop or dance music with Scandinavian, you know, misty Scandinavian um, tunesmithing. But, um, <laughs> But anyhow, I, but, but before we get into that, I really liked the did you the Ghana the the funk collection from nineteen seventies Ghana. Oh yeah! Oh, While we're on funk, let's play some of that Ghanaian music. That was fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah, "Make It Fast, Make It Slow" by Rob. Sometimes I live fast. Sometimes I live slow. Make it fast. I love that that is explicitly about rhythm. I mean, that seems perfect. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, is- I mean, my basically my hips detached from the rest of my body and started walking down the street solo, leaving like the wasp husk of the rest of me behind. <laughs> but, um, all right, well, here's another one that I... Like there are two songs by uh, an outfit called Sylvan Esso on here. Has anyone heard of them? Before? Oh no, but I that that made my hot list too. I particularly liked the one called HSKT, 
which sounds like some kind of acronym from the future for like the food packs that the Jetsons would eat, but in fact just stands for head, shoulders, knees, and toes. So it's basically like <laughs> the songs I sing to my kids all the time turned into strut. It seems like the wheels on the bus remix. <laughs> I think you mean T W O T B. <laughs> all right. Let, this is HSTK by Sylvanesso. Wherever I end up, I sleep like a stone. Yeah, I got a phone, it beats me, me no, I'm not alone. I would like to make the proposition that the horn is an essential part of strutting. I feel like a lot of the songs that really got me strutting had some sort of brass section. And in particular, there's an all-instrumental that somebody sent in by an artist called Trombone Shorty that really, really got me strutting, Hurricane. Can we listen to a little clip of that? Yeah, that one was great fun, too. Your horn corollary, the horn corollary of Summer Strut. I think that makes a lot of sense, Dana. But I, as usual, Summer Strut also introduced me to a couple of more straight up uh, radio plausible, if not radio dominating pop songs from summer 2014, or at least the year 2014. I, I'd love to flag two of those for you guys. One of them was the song Chandelier by Sia, which maybe wasn't as strutty as some others, but definitely has been more stick in the heady than some others. It might, it might fit better with our Song of Summer conversation than our Summer Strut conversation, but let's listen to a little clip from that. So first of all, that's a little bit of a like Rihanna Manke type situation there. It sounds a little knockoffy. I also like how she's added extra syllables to Chandelier just the way Rihanna did to Umbrella. Maybe this is like a breakthrough tactic from Young Chantuses. It's Chandelier, I think, in this, like Umbrella. But anyway, I, you liked this one too, Dana. Yeah, there were so many things to like about this one. This definitely fits in the category that you mentioned up top of the ethereal anthemic summer song, right? It's not a strong beat. It's, it's really melodic and sort of girly and a little bit sort of whiny. You know, it's, it's a little bit in the tradition of an Adele song or maybe, but it also has that sort of um, fun anthem, not exactly a party song, but a sort of, uh, a, what would you call it, like letting loose song, affirming your own sort of lonely selfhood. And something interesting about Sia is that she's actually not a young chanteuse. I think she's 40 or over 40. She's an Australian singer who has been around for a while. And the fact that she is, you know, writing this sort of youth anthem that is about an adolescent longing in, in her 40s, I love. Yeah. The other more pop artist that I liked from this set was Lily Allen. I've, like, heard about Lily Allen. Oh, British singer Lily Allen, hot British songsters Lily Allen. I've been aware of Lily Allen for a long time, but I've never gone down any kind of Lily Allen rabbit hole. Um, but she has the song Latecomer, which I think came out in February, which has a little bit of a kind of hot-stepping love song aspect to it. I enjoyed this one. Also, it's a song that mentions summer. A good summer strut song can sometimes be about summer love. See, to me, that one was so auto-tuned that it was just unlistenable. It didn't sound like it was coming from any human body, so I just didn't like that voice. But she obviously doesn't always use that much auto-tuning in her songs, right? I don't know. Something about the rhythm of it, and I, you know, it seems to be a song about having good sex, but it seems so unsensual. I sort of liked the conflict there. 
Steve. Let me propose a, a corollary to the hornillary, which is <laughs> that sometimes like bad girl or bad boy lyrics make a song strutty, even though it may not be intrinsically all that strutty, or it makes up for whatever strutty deficit it has. So I kind of like, did anyone else have this jump out at all off of the playlist, uh, the st- song called Stay High by someone named Tove Low? Oh, yeah, I liked that one, too. Yeah, I eat dinner in my bathtub, and then I go out to a sex club. And then oh, I hated that one. I hated that woman. I do not want it. And she throws up in the bathtub? Gross. <laughs> I stopped listening to that 30 seconds in. <laughs> that response instead to the um the Iggy Azalea song Fuck Love which just seemed like a a cliche of all that is bankrupt and stupid about modern pop music like the lyrics are literally like I don't want your love just give me diamonds I'd prefer money to uh your amorous intentions that's not a direct quote but um that one was horrible but I I, I like a party song but I I need better values espoused in my summer strut than this nonsense (laughs) All right well I think things got you know things got pretty strutty in here i don't know that we solved the plato aristotle divide exactly um i don't even know how you got aristotle in here (laughs) well if you're not a platonist you're an aristotelian julia (laughs) anyhow um anyway you should check out our the um compiled list of strutty songs that we have for you Uh, we'll put the link on our show page facebook.com slash culture fest and if you have spotify you'll be able to listen to it and pronounce on it and uh the world of platonic forms as well. All right, well, now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? My endorsement this week actually flows directly from the Summer Strut list, and I'm glad that Julia mentioned this song because now I don't have to set it up. The Sia Furler song has a video that's incredible. Have you all seen any of the videos to these songs? No. It's actually fun to look up videos to some of these Summer Strut songs because there's some great dancing happening. I feel like dancing is coming back as a as a video form. I don't know if we owe that to Beyonce or, or what, but I'm loving it that there's a lot of good dancing videos out there. And the video to Sia's Chandelier has some incredible choreography and dancing by this 11-year-old girl named Maddie Ziegler, who is sort of playing Sia as a little girl. She wears this blonde bob wig that looks like the way Sia dresses, and a flesh-colored leotard that makes her look sort of naked, but not in a in a raunchy way, just sort of like a, a doll or something. And uh, and she's dancing this very anguished modern dance, like a teenager in her in her bedroom, essentially. And you start to realize, watching her dance, that the so- song lyrics are all about Sia listening to her parents fight and you know trying to get through the night, essentially, that she would fantasize about swinging from the chandelier so that she could get through these long days with her parents. And uh, it's beautiful dancing. I Reading about this girl, Maddie Ziegler, this 11-year-old who dances in the video, I realized that she's actually a contestant on Dance Moms, the reality show. So I guess she has a pushy dance mom. But I think she also has an amazing future as a modern dancer because she interprets this song so beautifully. So we'll link to that on our show page. I've been meaning to watch that video. I've heard great things about it. I'm going to put it up on my on my queue. Uh, yeah, sounds very cool. Julia, what do you have? I'm going to endorse a podcast that I've really been enjoying lately called Script Notes. Uh, it is the joint product of the screenwriter John August and Craig Mazin, both of whom are very successful Hollywood screenwriters. One of them wrote Go. One of them wrote The Hangover 2, Identity Thief, uh, Big Fish. They, they've, they're very successful Hollywood screenwriters and uh, sort of teachers of and mentors to young screenwriters in Hollywood. And it is a podcast very expressly about the process of screenwriting. Actually, their little tagline that they always say at the beginning of the show is that it's about screenwriting and things of interest to screenwriters. Um, and they they vary pretty widely. Sometimes it gets into like the thorny details of the new like Writers Guild contracts. And sometimes it gets into 
you know, the existential question of should you spec or should you pitch? Should you should you write a script on spec and send it out to agents and studios or should you, you know, kind of respond to calls to say, hey, do you want to come write this particular movie and pitch your vision of the movie? So sounds maybe not that interesting to non-screenwriters and people not interested in things relating to screenwriting, but I feel like I've learned a lot about how the movie and TV business works from listening to these guys. And they have sort of a funny rapport like you want from any podcast you listen to regularly. They have their little gambits back and forth. Um, And they have a lot of smart advice and interesting takes. There was a recent discussion. There was a viral video that went around from some fan of the director Edgar Wright saying, Edgar Wright's movies look great. They're so visually stylish. Why aren't more comedies visually stylish like Edgar Wright's movies? And they had a very interesting and entertaining um, takedown, basically, of this video's thesis, saying Edgar Wright's movies are glorious. Nobody would want them to be anything other than Edgar Wright movies. But to suggest that his particular visual style is the appropriate visual style for all comedies ever is totally stupid, misunderstands how comedies get made. And then they go on to tell all sorts of anecdotes about their own lives, making comedies in Hollywood that really informed my understanding of how movies work. So if you want to learn more about how movies come together... I highly recommend this show. They have an endless back catalog, and um, it's super informative and fun. Totally love script notes. It's great listening for process nerds of any kind, whether you care in particular about movie scripts or not. Yeah, they just get into the nitty-gritty in a really fun and satisfying way. Okay, well, so anyway, my endorsement this week takes off from a piece written by Jody Rosen, who was Slate's music critic, has bounced around now. He's at T Magazine. He wrote a great piece about um, schlock uh, in pop music and how great music pop music essentially is schlock or or schlock is sort of central to what makes pop music great and i thought there there he goes again right so he's breaking down the distinction between high and low brow we're all a bunch of clement greenberg inspired snobs except for jody you know it's one of those pieces where i admire every word because it's written by jody but i disagree with every word because it's written by jody and then after having read it on the radio at my car radio comes the song missing you by john Waite, and i crank it up and I'm, my voice is breaking as I sing along to it. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Jody is completely right on this. Like, schlock is the greatest thing that pop music can do. And I've come up with a pet theory as to why, which is that extremes of suffering or joy, everything can only express itself as a cliche. That beyond a certain point, you know, your ability to experience pain or express what the experience of pain or joy is can't be original anymore. It's just somehow not original. I mean, I guess it's primal in some way, or maybe it's beyond actual wordsmithing, or I, I don't know what it is exactly, but but schlock is kind of a correlative to, to the real extremes of of joy and suffering in a weird way. And that, that's why pop music, when it's crappy, accesses some part of your soul that it can't when it's sublime or or somehow excellent in some identifiable way. So this week I'm um I, I don't even think I believe that theory, but I'm <laughs> I'm gonna stick with it anyway and I'm gonna endorse Jody Rosen's schlock piece and then uh the song Missing You by John Waite, which is so freaking schlocky. But I'm just telling you, like I'm not saying that I'm pining for, you know, I'm currently being gutted because I have to exist apart from my beloved. I'm I'm not in that condition, but if I were that would be the song I would want to listen to over and over again. Amazing. I I endorse Steve's endorsement. Somewhere Jody's <laughs> fist is pumping. I think that should be the headline for this show. This Lake Culture Gab Fest, Jody Rosen is totally right edition. <laughs> <laughs>
about all things everywhere, <laughs> universally. End of conversation. All right. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. This was fun. As always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, Will. We'll see you soon. You're kind of smart.